Hi, welcome to the Kelly Cutrera podcast for Tuesday, September the 8th. Ian Lee will join us from the Sprott School of Business on the problems with the extended federal wage subsidy and a look ahead to payback. And let me tell you, it's going to be a you know what. Sneaky D's is likely to be demolished to make way for a Toronto condo building. Morgan Cameron Ross from the old Toronto series on YouTube has an argument to support the dive bar. And Marianne Demain from Global News this morning was at Maple Ridge Public School in Pickering, one of the first schools to get back at it. I asked her to give us a glimpse into a school year that will be very different from others. So paint us a picture. I mean, this is obviously different from past years. What are you seeing? Yeah, it's definitely different, not only down to the back to school accessories, which normally are comprised of, you know, brand new shoes and a backpack. This time they've got a brand new mask on and you're seeing the kids trying to make the most of this new rule, which we know is mandatory face masks for kids grade four to grade 12. We're seeing, you know, cartoon characters, pandas, you name it, you know, Minecraft characters. They're trying to make the most of this situation. That's the big thing when you're looking at the school as kids are streaming in. All of the face masks you're seeing, which obviously was not the case when they were in school six months ago. The other thing you're seeing are um, different teachers, education workers outside greeting the students, making sure they know where to go because, you know, with the first day of school comes all of the confusion of where's my class, who's my teacher. So that's still happening, but the administrators are wearing face masks and face shields. So students, you know, have been used to seeing this outside in um, different places where they may have gone with their family. But to see it in the school setting is definitely very jarring and interesting to see how the kids are coping. So far, though, it seems the kids are just excited to be back. The parents do seem a little bit apprehensive. But as we know, um, some parents are, you know, sending their kids back for different reasons. They either have to because they have to work or they want to protect elderly family members in their mm-hmm. bubble. So um, we're seeing a lot of mixed emotions, but for the most part, a lot of smiles coming from the kids who are running to school this morning. And and you can see that through the smizing of the eyes because we've yeah. got the kids in <laughs> the mask. So. There's a lot of smiling. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So our students seem relatively comfortable with masks. They've gotten used to it. I would imagine they're pretty excited to see each other. Are they keeping their safe social distance? Or Because I, I think that's where I'd forget. You see a friend you haven't seen for a while, you get a little close. Yeah, that's the thing. And a lot of the kids were saying that I've spoken to my parents, my mommy and daddy have shown me how to use this mask, and they know that um, they're not allowed to hug their friends. They've got the elbow tap down, or they're mm-hmm. just going to wave from a distance. There was a little girl going to grade two I, who I spoke to this morning, and she was saying that she was a little bit concerned about wearing the face mask all day and how hard or easy it might be to breathe in that. So she was saying to me, you know, I might have to step away from class and do this. And she pulled her mask down because she's a bit worried about how comfortable she'll be. And really, that's the learning curve for students as they head back to school during this pandemic is how are they going to navigate all of these new changes, all of the new protocols, the big one being the mask, trying to stay social distant. I know that, um, you know, there's the markers on the floor to try to control the flow of kids in the hallway and the desks they try to keep apart. But you're right. Kids are excited to see each other. They haven't seen each other since March. So that'll be the true test. How you know, this rollout of the school year goes, how the kids are adapting to this change and how they're following the rules as best as they can. Let's talk about the the teachers. Uh, did you get an opportunity to speak to any teachers and are they relatively confident with the uh, PPE and the deep cleaning protocol? And uh, are they confident that they, you know, have their lesson plans ready to go? 
We did not speak to any teachers this morning, only students, but we did see them pulling up and we saw two teachers with their face masks and they just yelled across the parking lot, are you ready? Let's do this. And they just right. kind of went in together. They, like the kids, are making the most of the situation. As we know, though, in the days and weeks leading up to this first day, the unions representing you know, thousands of education workers here in the province have not been happy with the back-to-school plan. The province has said they're confident in it, they stand by it, they've consulted with medical experts, so they say that this is going uh, to be a, a safe school year, but we know that some educators and some teachers were not confident that they've done enough with the plan to uh, create a safe learning environment. So we'll see how it goes on that end, but they are trying to make the most of it based on what we're seeing here. They're being happy and they're smiling to greet the kids as, mm-hmm. you know, this is different for everyone. And I think they're just trying to be as optimistic as they can. It's a staggered approach there as well as other um, school boards. How are they uh, rolling out the staggered approach in Durham region? Uh, Chris was telling me that he thought it might be based on last names. Yeah. So for the Durham's um, public elementary school students today are last names that start with the letters A to G, and then it goes on for the next two weeks. So you'll be going to school one day over the next two weeks, depending on the first initial of your last name. In the Catholic elementary school system, they were supposed to start a quarter of the class each day this week for in-person learning. Uh, But because of school uh, bus issues, they had to push that plan to next week. So they are still doing the first day of school today, but it'll be online until they can get that in-class plan up and running next week. Uh, For high schools, though, they are doing a hybrid model where they're in cohorts of 15 students and they're doing a mix of virtual and in-class learning that is every other day with alternate Fridays. So it's a staggered approach for the elementaries and then it's a different hybrid model for the high schoolers to try to limit the amount of kids who are in school at one time. Marianne, you brought up busing. Is it true that the the buses aren't running this week or if they are, are they just bringing uh, a certain grouping of students? What do you know there? Yeah, I know that was the big issue in Durham's Catholic Elementary Board. That was um, something that they had contacted parents about in the few days leading up to the first day of school where they weren't sure whether they were going to delay the first day of class because of the busing issues, that they couldn't get all of the the buses together in time to be able to take the kids. Um, There were some issues about how close the kids would be sitting, how many kids would be sitting on the seat. And so that's why in the end they decided to keep the first day today into the rest of the week online until that all gets sorted out and the buses are up and running as per usual next week. So they tried not to disrupt the classes and, and the start time, but um, for those who do rely on that that uh, service, they'll have to wait till next week. Obviously, you know, this is a very different school season and especially the start to school season. Everybody's trying to figure out. And then I would imagine that most of the day will be spent figuring out how we're going to logistically work this, you know, and uh, how to operate safely within the school. Uh, Probably not a ton of learning going on. I just would imagine just everybody getting acquainted uh, to this new type of learning. But overall, you'd say that the mood is that of excitement getting back to school like we have almost every year. Definitely. I think there was a lot of nerves, a lot of anxiety, and the kids know that there's going to be a lot of adjustment. But for them to come back onto the school property, I know for my kids too, um, just driving by the school over the summer holidays, they got excited because they haven't seen it for so long. So to see the kids here coming to school and seeing each other, you just see how excited they are. Once they get inside the classroom, though, um, it'll be a lot of orientation. It'll be a lot of going over the rules. Um, So how that will change the mood inside the class, 
with the classmates. Um, we're only, you know, on the first day, so who knows how it's going to go, you know, for the next few days, the next few weeks. But it seems, from based on what we can see outside, that kids are just really excited to get out there. And they've got their school supplies. This is, yeah. you know, the time of year where there naturally is that kind of excitement anyway. And although it's different, they do seem happy to be back. Oh, yeah. Fresh pack of Laurentian uh, pencil crayons, nothing better. Yeah, no. Scented markers. <laughs> You're on top of the world. Oh. Oh, you were rich, Marianne. <laughs> they were hand-me-downs. I'm the middle child. <laughs> well, then they weren't working too well because those mar- markers <laughs> never last long. Some kids leaving a lid off here or there. Marianne, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. That's Marianne Demaine. She's a global reporter outside Maple Ridge Public School in Pickering. Really, some things never change, right? All right, I was online today taking a look at the STARS website, and I uh, read this piece on how Canada's wage subsidy is benefiting workers, or is it employees that are being benefited? This is uh, one economist who is out of York University. Is um, He was originally in support of the, the program, which offered to pay employers that lost more than 30% of business revenue, up to 75% of wages, up to 847 a week maximum to retain its workers, to keep them attached to the companies in case of layoffs. He was in favor of that, but uh, the government announced in July that it would extend the uh, Canada emergency wage subsidy into December. And now he's worried that perhaps businesses may be the main beneficiaries and it's being possibly abused. Here to talk about it, Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business out of uh, the University of Carleton. Welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for being here. So were you one of the economists that also agreed that this was a a good um, early response to COVID-19, this wage subsidy? Not exactly. Yes, I'm I'm not uh, hedging or fudging. I argued from the get-go, and I mean back in March, I argued that the government should have subsidized, sent the checks directly to the business, not to the consumer, no CERB, but but I argued it should have been done on a, on a person-by-person basis. Let me explain so that doesn't sound so, so strange. Every employer in our country, profit and non-profit, including universities, radio stations, must submit on the 16th day of every month to CRA the withholding taxes for all the people on the payroll. And that's the unemployment insurance premiums that we pay, the CPP premiums. And they must list every person on the payroll with their SIN number. People don't realize that. Every employer in our country must submit that every 30 days. So CRA knows exactly who's working. They have way better data, by the way, on all of us than the spy guys. And, okay. and so my point is, you, you simply say you, you could subsidize on a per-worker basis who the uh, company is going to lay off. You could subsidize them directly by reversing the pipeline so the CRA sends the check out to the business or the employer instead of the employer sending the check into CRA. If you follow my logic, it's a two-way right. pipeline, and it's all done through electronic banking anyways. So my point is they should have done it on a targeted basis. So I, yes, he did. The, the professor did say that. Uh, it should not be given as a blanket to the business, but should be based on the actual person who lost their job, as the Germans are doing. So I'm in complete agreement on that. It should have been targeted, not right. universal. He- Here's the check business. Go have fun. Right. He's worried that it might end up subsidizing businesses that might have kept their employees anyways. And one of the other things he says, which is really interesting, is he he starts to talk about, he gives an example. He said, 
Um, this program could allow companies to split off profitable elements of their businesses into separate entities while still claiming wage subsidies for their losing ends. Let's say a restaurant's losing business because customers aren't coming, but their online sales are increasing. One option is they carve up the online portion yep. and into a separate company, and then the restaurant can still continue to claim the CEWS. Now, Kelly, we've said this a, before on the show. Like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. Well, you that's his insight. Account- that's his insight. Yeah, any any good accountant, uh, and there's lots of good accountants. My school produces accountants, so does his school. He's at the Schulich School, um, yeah. and they go and work for the big accounting firms and the small accounting firms, too. And they're highly trained and skilled uh, as CPAs, certified public accountants. And uh, so it's very, uh, it's a straightforward matter once you're, you've got the technical accounting expertise to create, essentially, um, a subsidiary. Businesses do this all the time. The bigger the companies do it even more, the Apples and the Googles. So they say, okay, we're going to record this income in Ireland because the taxes are lower than recording it in this country over here because the taxes are higher. So it's moving things around. It's perfectly legal. Uh, There's nothing illegal about this. And uh, so they could have very easily put the restaurant that's losing money into one subsidiary and then put another part of the business that's making money into another uh, business, um, a subsidiary, and so that they can then get the, the subsidy from the government. It's perfectly legal, by the way. There's nothing nefarious or inappropriate. And, but it, it's, a, it's an unintended consequence, and I agree with him. Well, isn't it slightly inappropriate when we talk about the debt we're going to be looking at long term? You know, this money isn't free. Somebody has to pay for it. I'm agreeing with you completely. I'll go further, actually. Um, you know, that the, the rhetoric coming out of the government, out of, out of Ottawa, and I'm talking to Mr. Trudeau and, and people who are, uh, you know, supporting the, the policy of the government, is, is that we've got this terrible, terrible crisis. You know, Canada's going over the cliff. The data did not support that. It does not, not work back down. We're about a million people unemployed. By sure, we have to target that million people. But the idea that we have to subsidize everything and everybody across the totality of the economy is not sustainable financially, and it's not sustainable factually. Most people are back to work. That The GDP is skyrocketing upward. Real estate prices are going through the roof in the GTA and Ottawa, by the way, and elsewhere in the country. Well, if everybody was out of work, and I'm being a little bit loose here, but you get my point. If we were all flat on our back and we'd all lost our jobs or large numbers, we would not be bidding up those prices through the roof. It's because there's so many people that are doing so well. So we should be adopting Mr. Trudeau is going down the wrong road by uh, essentially sounding like he's going to propose universal increases to our social programs when we don't have a universal problem. We have a targeted select problem of about a million people and we should focus like a laser beam as bill clinton used to say on those one million people and not to the totality of everybody else in the country because we so can't this afford was a me- to subsidize everybody yeah, was this um ian was this a messaging problem uh, that lies squarely on the shoulders of trudeau because i say this because i read this article about this woman who was on social assistance and i thought you know she had said that she's on social assistance and now the fact that she took the CERB is going to affect how much she made that year. And so her social assistance will go down. She's freaking out saying, I never would have applied had I known that that was going to be a consequence. And she now has to show receipts to show that, yeah, this is actually what I did spend my CERB on in order to continue on with her social assistance, maybe at the level that it was pre-pandemic. And she had said, you know, people were just urging, urging her neighbors, oh, go get it. It's there. It's there for the taking. 
you know, that seems to be the message that I recall yeah. that Trudeau yeah. was pushing. First off, if I can gently disagree with that woman, they made it very, very clear at the very beginning the CERB was taxable and reportable. And that was very widely reported. It's right on the webpage. So I don't quite buy that argument. I didn't know because it was made very transparent. Having said that, the larger issue is that the government at the time, and I was very critical, I think I even talked to you back in March or April on this, was there was no due diligence upfront checks and balances. That's why if we were going to do the CERB, we should have done it through the unemployment insurance system that has thousands of public servants trained and skilled in that. And their argument was, well, there were too many people we had to accommodate uh, who needed help overnight. Well, they could have done a, a self-reporting, self-selecting system, just like income tax returns. I voluntarily, you do too, say, tell the government, this is what I made, you know, here's all my deductions, and then you send it in. It's a, it's a, it's they a already honor know. system. <laughs> they could have done that system using the EI rules right. and said, okay, fill this out online at EI. By the way, we're going to audit you after the fact, but right now we'll take your word, just like income tax. You get audited after the fact, so if you lie, they'll catch up with you. Same, they could have done the same model with EI because there weren't enough bureaucrats to handle all the claims up front walking in the door. So they could have gone to the apply online model of the CERB, but with the rules of unemployment insurance, which first and foremost, you don't pay 100 or 150% of your income loss. And we ended up, the, the fiscal snapshot showed the government paid out 50% more in aggregate than the totality of all the job losses. So they paid out 150%, but EI doesn't pay 150%. It actually pays 55%. Maybe it should be 75 Maybe it should be 85 But I think most people would agree we shouldn't be paying 150%. In other words, you make more on EI, according to that logic, or more on the CERB, than you do if you work. But that was never the principle of the EI system. It and disincentivizes been- getting back to work, kickstarting the economy. We've got a, we've developed a suite of social programs from the 1960s with Lester Pearson, and we've developed them and fine-tuned them over the years, and they work. And there's strong support for our unemployment insurance system. And there's two principles of that system: a, you don't get 100% of your income when you lose your job; b, you got to be looking for a job while you're on EI, even if yeah. there's no jobs out there. You got to show to EI that you're trying, so that when the jobs come back, you're in the in the groove, if you know what I mean. And, and okay, let me ask you this because you just. You touched on something. You just touched on something. It's when the jobs come back. Um, this professor at a York that I was talking about with the, that the star featured today, talking about the uh, the wage subsidy program. He said, you know, if this is extended into the pandemic's potentially lengthy future, we don't know how long it lasts. It could impede the natural migration of the laborer exactly. uh, yeah. moving into you know other business sectors. Would you agree with that? This is getting in the yeah. way of economies evolving. That's <laughs> Kelly, that's exactly why when they set up the EI system and all that's been evolved and changed over the years, they never went to 100% of uh, compensation for your lost income because they did not want to sabotage the the labor markets. And this this is not a right-wing principle. My God, the government, the EI system was developed mostly under liberals. It was developed by Mackenzie King in the 40s and then, of course, fine-tuned by Louis Saint Laurent in the 50s and then Pierre Trudeau in the 16 years he was in power and and the Kretschmer. So nobody can say this is a right-wing thing. The liberals said most of the time they were in power, we don't want to sabotage the wage markets, the labor markets, by making it so generous people say, screw it, I'm staying home. 
And so that's why they didn't pay 100%. They actually paid 55%. Now, I could see an argument that that's too low, that it should be maybe 75%, maybe 80 but not 150%. I mean, what you're saying is you're putting a great big signal saying, please go home. We're going to give you more if you go home than if you go to work. I think most Canadians, when you put it that baldly, would say, that's not right. But also, don't you think they're creating, you know, social friction? Because there are people that didn't leave work and couldn't leave work. And I think they're looking, they're working just as hard. They're looking at the future. They're worried about the future. And what we're doing here is we're going to turn people against each other. Based on so. who gets handouts and who pays for the handouts. And, well, and that's unfortunate. Well, we get the bill, as the PPO well, director said on Sunday. You know, anyone who thinks that there's not going to be any cost for this, that there isn't going to be downsizing of the government, existing programs, and tax increases just doesn't know what's going on. So I think when people finally realize there is a bill, right now I don't think, because Trudeau keeps saying, don't worry, people, no cost, no, no tax increase. He's been deceiving us. And I say that because no serious person believes you can put on a half a trillion dollars indefinitely into the future without there being financial consequences, including tax hikes. Well, so, listen, Ian, this is going to touch every part of our lives because I I had this major renovation to this old you know century home I live in, in the works, and I don't know if we're going to go as big as we were initially planning. So it's back to the drawing board, quite literally. I'm kind of leaning at that because I'm thinking, you don't think your taxes, your property taxes are going to increase based on the size of your house? You got to be kidding. We've got municipalities are going to have to make up money you know, uh, somewhere. I, I, I quite agree. Uh, I think that there's going to be now, uh, I've already talked about the tax increases. They're inevitable. I, uh, I am predicting without any shadow of a doubt, we're going to see HST increase and personal mm-hmm. tax increases. But on the other side, uh, and I think this is very important, Kelly, we're going to see major austerity. You may not, they won't use that word because it's got a bad connotation now. So they'll use something else, call it downsizing, call it cuts, call it reprofiling programs, whatever they want. There's going to be major cuts. And I don't just mean at the federal level. You know, I, I, I've looked at the municipal across Canada, the, the big cities, okay? And their yeah. revenues have gone up phenomenally over the last 20 years. This has been documented by the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And then the mayors go on television and say, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Well, the cities, to my knowledge, the big cities of Canada, the Calgarys, the Ottawas, the Montreals, the Torontos, the, the Vancouver's, have never experienced strategic program review, which was not pioneered by Stephen Harper. It was pioneered by Paul Martin Jr. in 1995, where they went through all their programs and say, which ones of these do we absolutely have to keep? Which ones are nice to have and which ones are really not really necessary? And that's called strategic program review, and then you kill the programs that are not necessary or are no longer working. We're going to, the cities across Canada, the municipalities, have to, they've never experienced downsizing, they've never experienced hard times in any meaningful way, and they're going to have to, the city of Ottawa has one million people, and our budget is four billion dollars. Four billion. So there's, there's just no way that anybody can tell me that they can't go through four billion dollars of spending and find some savings. efficiencies. Yeah. Well, you know, Ian, this is a little bit of a subject change, but, you know, we were, we have a family cottage in Port Elgin and we use the, uh, we just walk through the conservation area or the uh, provincial park whenever we're up there because we're close to it. And uh, I was going through over these boardwalks, you know, through this beautiful nature trail where they had signs to tell you what to look for. And, you know, these are things that people are taking advantage of now that they can't go anywhere. And I thought these are going to be the first things to go. Like the people that repair these boardwalks, it's going to fall into disarray. And for 
quite a while, I would imagine. Like, unless we get volunteers to start yep. helping out with things like that, yep. it's, they're just not going to be maintained. When you experience tough times, you have to make tough choices. I mean, it was Pierre Trudeau who famously said, and I remember this because I came of age, that's when I first started voting in the 70s. He said, to govern is to choose, to make, and he meant to make tough choices. Governments cannot do everything because there's always far more demands on government than there is resources to fund them. So you got to make tough choices. So we're going to have to go through and say, okay, what's more important, you know, having the parks cleaned, I don't know, every day versus affordable housing versus whatever, mm -hmm. you know, police, fire. I mean, these are trade-offs that have to be made. And, you know, I, I argue that we have in the last, and I've been very vocal at the city at the local level on local radio, because we spend, uh, City of Ottawa has a larger geographical footprint, believe it or not, than Calgary or Toronto. The city of Toronto, we have more hectares in our urban boundary. We spend less than $100 million on snow removal, which is woefully, laughably inadequate. And yet we bring in $4 billion. So what are we doing? Well, we're spending more and more of our money on what I call non-essential services. Nice to have. Beautiful, clean parks. Okay. Sure. But, you know, we have to make choices. Are we going to clean the sidewalk so little old ladies and, and older people don't fall down and break their hip, you know, and go into the hospital? And, and no, you know what we're going to have to do, Ian? We're going to have to take personal responsibility for our communities. We're going to have to go back to a time where people picked up garbage when they walked by. That's what I do at the beach at Port Elgin every time I go down. I go exactly. down, I take a bag with me. And you know what? It's not too hard to do, and it instills a lot of community pride. And unfortunately, I, I have we're to leave it at that because we could go on and on. I think listeners right now know these two. Boy, yeah. you wouldn't want to watch them over a beer because it would turn into <laughs> just a late night drinking session and bring out the scotch. Ian, I want to okay. thank you for your time. Thank you. Right. Have Bye. a great day. Ian Lee is professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. There was a proposal that was submitted to the city on Friday, and you may have heard about this. It calls for a mixed-use building that would cover the current residents of 419, 421, 423, 429, and 431 on College Street. And this is a condo building. It will have about 169 units in it. And one address on College Street has people upset. It happens to be 431 College Street. That is the location at the corner of College and Bloor Street of none other than Sneaky D's. Now, I, I see Sneaky D's and I, I you know, I, I know that there's people listening that are from a certain generation that know exactly what Sneaky D's looks like inside. And they've been upstairs to you know watch friends bands. I would qualify in that category. Some people call it the best place in Toronto for nachos. I don't recall anything outstanding about the nachos at Sneaky D's, to be quite honest. It's, it's just a dive bar that ha has live music and, and nachos. And I think that there was a time and place for this. I'm just not sure if that still exists, like, are we kidding ourselves holding on to our nostalgia too much? A petition has been started calling for the rejection of this uh, space being changed. Morgan Cameron Ross joins the show now. He hosts a series on YouTube called Old Toronto Series. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Pretty good. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay. Well, how are you? I'm guessing pretty good. I'm pretty good, but but I'm going to have to take quarrel with your your uh, criticism of the nachos. I'm I'm quite a fan of fan of them. There, you, you think it's the best in the city? Well, it it depends on which ones you order, to be honest. So, all right, what are the ones we order? have to order if we go to the Sneaky D's? Well, there's obviously the King's Crown one, which is like the the normal. 
the normal one that people go to, but there's one called Cactus in the Valley, which is which is kind of one of the sneaky ones on on the menu. But uh, definitely, I'll I'll bite. What, why does it? Why is it so good? What's in it? Well, it's it's I'm a spicy kind of guy, so for me, it's it's one that's like legitimately spicy. So so that's that's my go to. I can tell you're spicy just based on the way we started this interview. <laughs> Not hey, first, first of all, bef- that. <laughs> before we get into Sneaky D's and its history, what is the old Toronto series and why did you start it? Uh, the old Toronto series is predominantly on uh, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. And if people are interested, go to just search old Toronto or old Toronto series. Uh, it started as a, as a Instagram account when I was in grad school doing um, kind of Toronto history stuff. Um, but it kind of grew. We've now got, you know, a couple hundred thousand followers and it's my full time, uh, my full time gig. And uh, yeah, it's mostly just me talking about Toronto history, kind of, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, like dry history, but also just kind of cont- like quirky Toronto history. Is that what you went to school for history? Yeah. Yeah. I studied, okay. uh, studied Toronto history. All right. Well, Sneaky D's, uh, it does have some history. Now, I was shocked because I've been going to Sneaky D's really since its incarnation. Uh, that's how old I am. But um, I didn't realize that it started on Bathurst Street. And and I did live in that hood for a while. But it, it, was, it was really when it started to uh, make its mark. It's when it moved to college in Bathurst Street in 1990. It began as yeah. a, a family business in 87. But that spot, that corner of College Street has... Uh, had some other places inhabit it before Sneaky D's. Maybe run us through the history. Yeah, well, the building's been there for over 100 years, obviously. But that that intersection, intersection, so College and Bathurst has been, you know, it's a major artery. So it's a north-south artery, and then College is obviously a large street. So that corner was always important, especially with the bank right there. And there was a bank still there on the on this southeast corner, the Royal Bank. Um, so that building has has been many different things like it was a dominion grocery store uh, at at one point and then it was the the very beautiful daisy tea room for a long time for you know a few decades actually so when you said people uh, people have young people have been going to sneaky d's for years to be honest young people have been going to that uh location for something for you know 80 some odd years okay but I don't know how many young people are going to be attracted to the tea room. I mean, that would be for uh, all ages where sneaky D's really did have a, a particular uh, clientele, no demographic. Yeah. Well, so sneaky D's does, but the Daisy tea rooms upstairs turned into a dance hall uh, in the fifties. So it was always for young, young people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you didn't have too many, uh, too many elderly people going dancing there at the time. Uh, but so sneaky D's has been there since 1990. And it's, you're right, it's an institution, but it really is, you know, it was important to young people in 1990, but it's important mm-hmm. to young people right now. And, you know, the young people in 1990 are, are less young. So it really is this cross-generational kind of great equalizer. Okay, so Sneaky D's right now, who's it catering to? And is it is it the same as it was back in the 90s? It was largely a punk bar upstairs. You know, downstairs was a good dive bar where you can get some affordable eats and, and beer and, and hang with your friends. Who's going to Sneaky D's? Because to be honest, I was one of the, the early groups of, of people that were going to Sneaky D's, I guess one of the early clients. But it, when I think about going back to Toronto now, like whenever I'm in the city, I'm like, mm, Sneaky D's low on the list. Like if I'm walking by it, I'm still probably not going to get a beer there. I'm like, I got a powerful thirst. 
It's uh, it's 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 still a great equalizer. So I took my parents there a while ago, and they love it. But it's but I also have taken you know like a young cousin there, and they love it too. So it it really is this kind of grungy, you know, you know what you're gonna get. Um, you know, it's it's a rock bar, and yeah. you know, for for people of of many different generations, it's kind of the the grungy, dirty rock bar with good food and like surprisingly good service. So it's it's it really is still something that brings in the university crowd, but also they can take their parents there, and the parents are kind of proud of the fact that they maybe used to go there as well. Is there anything that would be like a, a comparison venue? I mean, I'm trying to think of one and the horseshoe doesn't well, work because it doesn't doesn't really doesn't serve food. food the same way. Um, you know, and then when you go to the Rivoli down the road, it could qualify, but really it's more food, less less entertainment. So is this a unique space? It is entirely a unique space in the city and that's I, I think genuinely why so many people are worried about it uh disappearing. But I wanted to say uh, my sources at the actual restaurant um, have made it clear to me that Sneaky D's itself is not going anywhere. The building might change, but the ownership of the condo development wants Sneaky D's to oh. still be a tenant, still be a tenant, but also to also have a music venue at the exact same location. So, well, that's you, I guess it's hopeful, but is that even the same thing? It's it's no longer Sneaky D's. I mean, Sneaky D's is dirty. You well, have but, to be the even the nature of the name Sneaky D's. It's yeah. dirty. It's got to be grungy. It's got to have the grit about it. I would I think, argue that you know a new space might not have that. It might not have that, but I, I I've always been impressed with with the ownership and management there in terms of they really know how to do a good job at appearing as though they're not doing a good job, and they would know how to. Uh, you know, uh, even if it just means bringing in all the old boots that are still there currently, I I trust that they would, at minimum, do a fairly good job of making it look non-fancy. Okay, let's be honest here. How how yeah. how trashed are those boots? <laughs> What's their uh, state? It's great. It's just been you know people have been carving their names in there uh, for you know. 30, 30 years since they since they opened, so it's it's pretty you know it's it's a charming place. Oh hey, I'm I'm familiar with it. I don't know if charming is what I would give it, but I I have to say, look, I frequented many a dive bar. I just uh, I wonder if this petition's going to work. It seems like your sources say that they're going to work with the developer, and the developer will give them an opportunity to rent the space. But let's face it, nothing's free in the city of Toronto, and if real estate prices continue as they are. Could they even afford to hold on to that? Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's a place that just has, you know, you can go there at, at you know, even two, three in the morning on most nights because, you know, they stop serving booze at two. But that place is just packed with people all the time. Um, obviously, COVID has hit them fairly hard, but they mm -hmm. also have 30 years of, of doing, you know, remarkably well. So that place is... You know, it's always full. And if we, uh, if we lose it, how big of a loss will it be to the city of Toronto? It authentically, it'll it would be a very big loss. And me personally, I I'm you know that place holds a special place for me. So I would uh, I would not <laughs> I would not be okay with losing it. But I also um, I've chatted with uh, with the the right people, and I'm not worried about 
the institution of Sneaky D's disappearing. All right. Well, Morgan, I'm glad that you uh, can give us this little insider information. I appreciate <laughs> you being on the show. If people want to check out the old so- Toronto series, where do they go? Well, first they go to Instagram and just type in Old Toronto. It'll come mm-hmm. up. Uh, Facebook, just search Old Toronto series. And please go to the YouTube, also Old Toronto series, and you can find me there. It's a lot of short mini documentaries I do about, you know, kitschy, kitschy things around the city. And I love uh, it. yeah. Thank you. It's good. Uh, I appreciate it. And I think, you know, if we lose places like uh, like Sneaky D's, if it doesn't come to fruition that they move in with the developer when the developer uh, builds this uh, condo building, then at least we have some reference of it in your documentary. I mean, yeah, it's and not they the same also, thing. I've also been told that uh, they're willing to go to a different location if push comes to shove, too. So, All right. Yeah, Morgan, thank you so there's... much. I Perfect. I appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great day. That's Morgan Cameron Ross. He hosts the Old Toronto series on YouTube. And that's it for today's podcast, which is essentially just a highlight of some of the things we talk about on our live show between nine and noon on Global News Radio 640 Toronto weekdays. Hopefully you can join us sometime. Have a great afternoon.